Okay, um, this morning we are going to be looking at what is arguably one of the most complex and important and vital and strongest phrases and concepts in the Bible. It is one in which you could spend and maybe should spend a lifetime studying. It's one that you can come back to over and over again in the darkest of days or in the lightest of days. When you are on the mountaintop declaring the goodness of God or you are in the valley questioning where God is. It is a phrase that brings comfort and hope and rejoicing and peace. It's a phrase that shows up throughout all of the Bible, the Old Testament and New Testament. It's two simple words. But God. But God. It's a phrase that if you read your Bible, you've read this phrase thousands of times and probably never even thought twice about it. It's one of those things that you don't even really process in your brain. But if we do stop, if we slow down this morning and we, we really consider the, consider the ramifications of this phrase and what Scripture is telling us, what God himself is telling us every time he gives us this phrase in his word, we are going to be overwhelmed by what we learn of who God is. We're going to see God reveal himself in new and different ways or maybe just hear some things that you already know, you already remember, but need to be strengthened in and reminded of, oh yeah, that's who God is. As I said, it's in the Bible a lot of times and we could spend days and days and years and years looking at all of them. We're going to look at just three this morning. So as I said, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 50. Um, I'm going to pray and then we will jump in uh, and, and study. I'm excited for what, we, what God has for us this morning. So please uh, bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you and we celebrate you. God, you are good and you're good all the time. God, we thank you for this chance to gather together and to worship you and to celebrate you. Together in person, together online, thank you for the advancements in technology to make that possible so that people, uh, there, there's really no excuse why we can't see the gospel go forward, that we can't see uh, the gospel proclaimed and preached. You've proven that over and over in this last year and a half as we've dealt with this pandemic, that it, even a global pandemic can't stop the church because the gospel will continue to go forward. God, we thank you for this diverse and humble community that you have given us, this great gift that you have given us. This place, these people, this community where we can find rest and encouragement and challenge. God, we know that the, the church is not always neat and clean. And sometimes it's, it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to be in community, but Lord, we thank you for how it shapes us. We thank you for the ways in which your word guides us and reveals you to us as we pursue you together. Lord, we pray that as we open your word this morning, that we are encouraged and challenged and edified. We pray that we are able to be the kind of people who hear your word and respond. So Lord, I pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us minds to understand, give us hearts to believe, and give us hands and feet to respond to what you have for us. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Genesis 50. I'm going to start in Genesis 30. I'll catch up to you guys in a minute. I want to give you a little bit of background on what's going on before we jump in. Because the story that we're jumping into in Genesis 50 actually starts back in Genesis 30. It is, if you're looking for something to study this week, if you're running out of things, your devotional just ran out, and you're looking for something, uh, the story of 
Um, really the whole beginning part of Genesis as God makes the promise to Abraham of descendants, but this specifically in Genesis 30, the story of, uh, it starts with a man named Jacob who has 12 sons. Uh, Those 12 sons will go on, they and their families and descendants will go on to become the nation of Israel. And Jacob loves his sons, loves them, but he loves one more than the rest, Joseph. And you'll see even with Jacob and with his family and with The things he comes out of, this family is wrapped up in generational sin and anger and hate and jealousy. But even with all of that going on, with all of the strife and ugliness that this family has going on, Joseph is a man who is constantly and consistently dependent on God and trusting in God. Out of jealousy and anger and rage, Joseph's brothers decide to beat him, throw him in a pit, and sell him to traders who would later sell him as a slave to Egypt. And then they tell their dad that a wild beast ate his favorite son. Joseph ends up spending 13 years as a slave and then a prisoner in a foreign land. He lives in this foreign land as purchased property, barely as a human, and then as a prisoner for a crime he didn't commit. And it would have been easy and even understandable if Joseph would have become bitter and angry and resentful at everyone and everything, including God himself. But he doesn't. He stays committed. He stays consistent in his faith and in his walk with God. And eventually, Joseph will find himself becoming the second in command in all of Egypt. You have Pharaoh running everything, but the one who's really making sure that things are going the way they are supposed to go is Joseph, this purchased property. This one who was barely considered a human, barely considered a person, is now running all of Egypt. And a famine hits the known land. And the only people who are prepared, the only ones who have food stored up, are the Egyptians because of Joseph, because God worked in Joseph's life. And so Joseph's brothers are sent by their father down to Egypt to get some of this food so that they won't die. And eventually they stand before their brother, not knowing who Joseph is, but Joseph knew exactly who was standing before him. And that will bring us to Genesis 45 and one of the best reveals I think ever. I mean, you have, you know, in, in the Count of Monte Cristo, you have Edmund Dantes when he finally reveals his true identity, seeking revenge. You have Jean Valjean declaring to Chavert and Les Mis that he is the escape prisoner 24601. And as good as those are, nothing compares to when Joseph lets his brothers know he is alive and well and is running Egypt and that God has used him to provide. Eventually, the family is reunited and can establish new roots in Egypt. And that brings us to chapter 50 of Genesis. And Jacob has finally passed away. And now all the brothers get worried that Joseph is going to take his revenge on them. And that's where we see our phrase for this morning. In Genesis 50, starting in verse 15, it says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said it may be that Joseph will hate us And pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for, I, am I in the, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, 
but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The brothers get worried that Joseph was just playing nice until their dad would go away, and now that dad was dead, that that he was going to extract his revenge. And Joseph says, no, no, quite the opposite. What you meant for evil, God is using for good, but God meant it for good. But God took the evil and he used it for good. But God took the jealousy, anger, rage, and violence and used it to save what would become the nation of Israel. Because that's what God does. He takes what is broken. He takes what is bent. He takes what is destroyed, what is ugly, what has been attacked and abused by this world. And he says, no, I'm going to use that for good. Watch what I'm going to do. Watch how I'm going to use this for my glory. I'm going to redeem this. I'm going to restore this. But God reminds us that God can use and does use every circumstance, every decision. There is no situation that you can put yourself into that can checkmate God. He's constantly using all things to work together. He's, we've been saying this for over a year now. God is in control of all things at all times. And he will use all things at all times for his glory and for good. So when you find yourself, not if, but when you find yourself in situations where you don't understand where you are, you are lost and confused, where nothing makes sense, or it just looks like evil is winning every time, That's where we remember that though it may look dark, but God. There is nothing and no one too far gone, too broken, too messed up, too out of touch, too out of reach. All things are possible for and with God. He takes what is old and he makes it new. He takes what is dead and he gives it life. He takes what is dirty and he washes it clean. So regardless of the sins that that you have committed or the sins that have been committed against you, If you would put your faith and hope in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you are a child of God and you are forgiven and you are redeemed and you are restored and you are a new creation. Yes, you will struggle. We all will. Yes, you will sin. We all will. But there is always more grace to be found and had at the cross of Christ. James 4 tells us that God gives greater grace. So no matter the laundry list of things you have done to rebel against God, he gives greater grace. You can't outsin the grace of God. You think you're done? You think you're too far gone? You think you stepped over the line one too many times? But God restores. But God steps in and restores all things and is making all things new. Joseph's brothers learned that even when they did something vile and horrible to get rid of their brother, because they were jealous and angry, but God restores what has been broken and makes something new. The second one I want to look at this morning is in Psalm 73. I want you to turn with your Bibles. I told you, we're going to jump around this morning. Psalm 73. Uh, again, the, if you're with us and you've got the Seatback Bible, it should be on the screen um, Psalm 73. 
The writer of the psalm basically talks about how he and God, really we and God, are nothing alike. Psalm 73, starting in verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The writer of this psalm, a man named Asaph, he sees the unrighteous go unpunished, the flourishing that they were experiencing. And he basically says it can drive people to not only anger, but even jealousy. Why did they get to do whatever they want? Why do I have to play by the rules and they get to do whatever and nothing happens to them? Asaph goes on to complain throughout the psalm that these people have no issues. Not until they die, their bodies are fat and sleek, he says, meaning they have money and prosperity. They can do what they want. They have no troubles. They are proud. They say and do whatever they want with no consequences. They even speak against God. They can do no wrong, it seems. They can even question God, berate God, and people listen to them, and people follow them. They are always at ease. They increase in riches. Asaph sees all of this and thinks all of this, and then he looks at his own life, and of course he's, he's the victim, and he says, I, I'm innocent. I work hard. And for all this work, everything that I do, all the innocence that I have, all I get is stricken and rebuked. I think many Christians feel this, may feel this same way. Looking at them, whoever them is for you, their agenda and their vulgarity and their way of doing things and it being counter to how I think and feel and believe people should act and yet nothing happens to them. Where's the judgment? Where's the consequences? In today's world, you can feel the tension when it comes to being a Christian. And heaven forbid you identify or tell somebody you go to an evangelical church because that brings with it a whole different stereotype and classification associated with that word evangelical now. And sometimes it looks and feels like it'd be much easier to just go along and live however we felt in the moment, to just live like we didn't have a Christian nameplate hanging around our necks. And so sometimes we do just tuck it away and hide, depending on who we're with. And that may seem easier, that may seem more convenient in the moment, but it is neither loving nor kind to your friends and family who don't know Jesus. If you are a follower of Christ, he has made you to be the light of the world. It's not, hey, if you have a second, be a light. It's not, hey, when you get more mature, when you know more of the Bible, when you've been Christian long enough, then you become a light of the world. No, he says you are the light of the world. Christian, it is your responsibility to point others to him in the way that we act, in the way that we speak, in the way that we love, in the way that we show grace and mercy and forgive. We don't get to take days off. We don't get to turn it off. And look, it's exhausting at times. It sometimes can be really hard to be a Christian in today's world. But God wouldn't call you to something. He wouldn't call you to be this light and then not give you the power, give you the tools to be able to do it. If you look around and observe what seems to be continuous victories for the enemies 
of God, it is easy to identify with Asaph and the complaints he has in this psalm. Which is another great reason to read the psalms, because this is just human life. This is the human experience on these pages. It's okay to go to God in prayer and say, God, I don't understand what you're doing. Why is this happening? It's okay to have those thoughts. It's okay to have those feelings. And it's okay to pray those things to God. It's even good. You see it in the psalms all the time. But then if you keep reading in Psalm 73, you get to verse 16. It says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. In verse 16, Asaph has this change of heart and mind. Things are changed for him, not when he's read a bunch of information, not when he's had a bunch of experiences with different, all kinds of different people and decided, ah, oh, people are not that bad. No, it's when he goes into the sanctuary of God, when he spends time with God, when he goes looking for wisdom, when he goes looking for rest with God, when he spent some time with him. Intentional time with God brings us clarity and perspective. Because it's then that he is given and he sees the bigger picture. He sees and remembers a bit of the justice and justness of God. Remembering that though we don't always see it, though we may never personally see it, the wicked and rebellious will always face consequences and judgments for their actions. Whether here in this life or in the world, in the life to come when they stand before God. Because those who are against God will eventually meet their fate in being eternally and forever separated from God in hell. And it's in this revelation, in this understanding, that Asaph comes back, and we see, and if you skip down to verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Whom am I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. This, this phrasing reminds me of Peter's response as people begin to leave Jesus. Jesus is preaching about how you have to die to yourself, take up your cross and follow me and the, what the expectations of what it means to follow Christ. And some of the crowd starts bailing. Some of the crowd starts walking away. And Jesus turns to his disciples. He says, are you going to leave too? And Peter says in John 6, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go to find light and life and true satisfaction and true fulfillment? Everything in this world is temporary and failing. God alone is eternal. And we see in verse 26 our key phrase, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Though our bodies will one day fail us, they will one day stop working. Life here is not the final chapter. It is not the end of the story, but rather the story is in the hands of the author of all existence. And for those who have placed their faith and hope in Jesus, God is their strength. Literally, that word is God is their rock. And God is their portion. He is their inheritance. To know God, to have a relationship with God here and now, that's part of of the inheritance, part of the portion of the people of God. He is a refuge and shelter, a place of rest and rejuvenation and to be enjoyed. And as that happens, we are strengthened by him. We are strengthened to go and continue to live and engage with this world, though it may be hard and exhausting 
The more time we can spend with him, the more time we can be filled up by God, the more and more we are able to pour out into the world. When it feels like you can't go another day, you can't take another step, another moment, we got to remember where our true strength comes from. Because, yeah, if you're just trying to get through this life on your own, you're just trying to grip the steering wheel, white-knuckle it, I'm going to just lean on my own trust, on my own, just on me and my abilities and my talents and my smarts and my stamina, eventually you are going to run out of gas. Eventually you're going to fall. And eventually you will become jaded and frustrated by a world in which it seems like the scales are tipped in the favor of darkness every time and it will lend you to go that way of thinking the grass is greener over there. It's not. Everything here has an expiration date. Everything here will fail and will fall and will come to an end. And as the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, that grass over there that seems so much greener, it will wither, the flowers will fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. That's the only thing that will stand. When everything else has run its course, it will be God and his word forever. Solomon instructs us in Proverbs 3, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Strength is not found in you, but found in him. When you feel exhausted and fried, and you just don't have anything left in the tank, when you start thinking all of this is futile, you just want to go to sleep, But God, but God strengthens, but God restores, but God redeems, but God gives us strength to keep moving forward. The last phrase I want to give us, the last but God I want to look at is Ephesians. I want you to turn, go to the New Testament, you're going to go to Ephesians 2. If you've been around CF for any amount of time in the last five and a half years or so, you have heard me quote and reference and bring us back to Ephesians 2 in some form or fashion often because it holds within it Paul working out for the Ephesians this clear explanation and understanding of who we are, who we were, and who we can be. It's this clear and beautiful working out of the gospel. So I'm going to read for you Ephesians 2. Starting in verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, there it is being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul tells us, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
You followed the course of this world. You followed the prince of the power of the air, Satan, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out all our desires by nature, children of wrath. That's who we are. Outside of Jesus, that's who we are. By nature, enemies. By nature, rebels. By nature, dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead, stuck, following Satan. That's the condition. That's the default wiring. That's the -the out-of-the-box way things are set up for us. It is a helpless and hopeless state. It is the problem all of mankind has been dealing with since Adam and Eve. It is the problem of evil, the existence of evil, the reality that mankind is not inherently good or kind or nice. And because of that, we are at odds with, we are on the other side of the spectrum from the holy, righteous, perfect, good God that has made all things and holds all things together. That's where things stand. But then you heard it in verse 4, but God but God is rich in mercy, has an abundance of mercy, has overflowing mercy, cannot ever run out of mercy. But God has a great love for us. And because of that, when we were dead due to our sins, it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. It is nothing that we could have done, can do, will ever do. Hear me when I say this. Please hear me when I say this. Outside of a relationship with God, you are dead, you are stuck, you are trapped, you are hopeless. Your future is bleak. But God loves you. He loves you so much he sent his son to die for you. I'll give you one extra but God. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were actively rebelling against God, he loved us so much he sent his son to die for us. Before, long before we even had the attempt, a possibility of trying to do something to impress God, which we can't do on our own anyway, long before any of that, when all of creation was crying out for a savior, God sent one, he sent his son to die for us. God is magnificent and awesome and powerful. But God also hears our prayers For as big and awesome and set apart and beautiful and wonderful as he is, he hears our prayers. He cares about what we have to say and he cares what you are going through. He is a place of safety and refuge and hope. We are rebels and enemies against God by nature. We are stuck. We are helpless and hopeless, ill-deserving and undeserving of the love of God. But God loves you anyway. God is for you. Yes, sin is real and rampant. Yes, it can be hard to see past the mess and endure just day-to-day life. But God is love. But God is just. But God is grace. But God is mercy. But God is holy. But God is helpful. But God sees you and he hears you. But God moves in your life. But God is in control. But God delivers. But God is not scared. But God is not lost. But God is not missing in action. But God is not mean. But God is not hurtful. But God is not spiteful. But God is good all the time. No matter how much it may look like evil is going to prevail, there is one who decides when the credits roll. There is one who decides when it's game over. There is one who decides how things are going to play out. This phrase, this concept of but God is about hope. It's about perseverance. It's about pressing forward. It's about knowing that something better is coming. 
It's grounded in the reality of who God is, a God who is about love and grace and mercy, that he would send his son to die for us. But God is about knowing that something better is coming. It's this mindset that kept the Israelites focused on him even in the darkest of times when they were being controlled by any different number foreign entity. When they were taken from their home over and over, they clung to this reality of, but God is going to do something. But God made a promise. It's what kept them looking to the horizon of life, expecting God was going to move in a mighty way. This idea of but God, while it isn't expressly stated every time, it does run rampant throughout the Bible. Because but God is about those places. It's about those moments and times where the only way something good and life-giving was going to happen was if God stepped in. The earth was without form and void, but God spoke and there was light. Abraham was promised a son. He was 100 years old. Sarah's 90 years old, but God fulfilled his promise and gave him a son. The Israelites have the Red Sea in front of them, Pharaoh's army barreling down behind them. They are stuck, but God parts the Red Sea and they cross on dry land. There's 450 prophets of Baal and there's one Elijah, but God rains down fire from heaven. David is just a kid with a slingshot and a staff. Goliath is a trained warrior and a giant, but God slays him. Jericho was guarded Those walls were high and thick. That city was impressive, but God made the walls come a-tumbling down. Mary was a virgin, but God took what is impossible and gave her a beautiful baby boy who would change everything. Jesus had two fish and five loaves, but God sent everybody home full. The winds were howling and the waves were crashing, but God let Peter walk on water. The people reject Jesus, they despise Jesus, they torture Jesus, but God used the ugliness of the cross to give us forgiveness and life eternal. Jesus suffocated publicly, died in front of groups of people, was stabbed through with a spear, was really, really dead for three days, but God raised him from the dead and he lives still today. No matter the situation, no matter the darkness, no matter the pain, no matter the person, when it seems like there is nothing left to do and all hope is lost, remember, but God can and will always make a way. That's our God. That's who we serve. That's who loves us so much he would send his son to die for you. That's who wants to have a relationship with you. When everything looks helpless and hopeless, that's where God says, But God's got this. But God is for you. But God is with you. God can and will always make a way. Let's pray.